Does it get any better than that? If you know Jesus, you know what that means. That means a major change. That means that you move from death to life. You know, baptism is meant to be a picture of your old life that is broken going into the grave and Jesus raising you anew out of the grave. That's what that is. What is going to happen to us when we die and Jesus raises us anew is pictured in the adoption ceremony of the kingdom. That we go through a ceremony to recognize the adoption of our souls into God's family and he raises us up to new life, right? And a lot of you are experiencing that and you might not know everybody that got baptized, but you know the family that they're getting adopted into and it's just an awesome thing. I want to just say too, if, you, uh, if you're sitting there, you're like, you know what, I need, to give my, I need to finish the job of giving my life to Jesus, then I just want to encourage you. If you're at Ording, I want you to find Pastor Darren and tell him and he's going to baptize you. I want you to find Terry in traditions and he's going to baptize you or come see Pastor Shannon, Pastor Shannon Wave. He was the, the handsome guy up here in the jacket reading testimonies, and we're going to baptize you. In fact, we could baptize you in the next service. So uh, we've got clothes for you. Don't worry. We're not going to send you home wet, um, but we will uh, we'll dunk you for sure and, uh, and bring you into the family of Jesus. So that's what Je- Jesus would have said dunk if he spoke English, but baptize sounds fa- fancier, right? Well, hey, good morning, and I do want to say good morning to all those watching online and in our various venues and here in the room. I am just excited to be a part of what God is doing in our world. I hope that you're excited about that as well because you're meant to be a part of it. God has a place for you in his kingdom. He has purpose for you that lasts beyond this life and into eternity, and he is calling all of us. He's calling all of us closer to, to himself, first of all. Because more than he's interested in what you can do for him, he's more interested in the relationship he wants to have with you. And then out of that flows incredible purpose. But we've been talking about the fact that Jesus introduced not just a a mentality or a worldview or a framework of thinking or a list of do's and don'ts into the world. Jesus introduced a new kingdom, a new culture into the world. And he came preaching saying, I brought the kingdom of God. I'm bringing the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is near. So he says, repent, which means turn, turn from the way you're living now and come live the way I'm calling you to live, which by the way is the way God always meant us to live. The things that our souls long for but are never satisfied in this world, Jesus is calling us and saying, hey, I can show you the way. I can show you the way to life abundant now and life eternal with me. And that is the kingdom that Jesus calls us to. And so we've been talking these last couple of weeks about the fact that Jesus introduced this new kingdom to the world and invited us, invited you and me to be a part of it. And that really is Jesus' ministry in the Gospels. Jesus is coming and showing the world a new way of doing things. And all along, no matter where you've been, where you've come from, what your background is, what your mistakes have been, Jesus is saying, this new kingdom, it's for you if you want it. It's for you if you want it. But it's going to require something of you too, because Jesus' kingdom has a little bit of a different culture than all the other kingdoms of the world. His family has a little bit different culture of the family than all the other families of the world. We've talked about the fact that, you know, when you get married and you go to your spouse's Thanksgiving or Christmas or whatever they do, family birthdays, you suddenly realize there's another culture in the world than the one you grew up in, right? When you travel to another nation, you realize there's other cultures than the one you grew up in. Well, Jesus introduces the culture we were all created for. And he calls us, he says, hey, come and be citizens of my kingdom. But we, we cannot do it without the king. Jesus came and died on the cross to cleanse us 
from the, the hold of brokenness that all of the other things of the world have on us. And then he poured out his Holy Spirit to renew our ability to actually live the way he's calling us to live. And we read about the intention of the cross and the intention of the Holy Spirit, particularly in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. You can turn to Matthew 5 because we're going to be preaching there this morning or go there on your, your app or, or uh, you'll see it on the screen. But we're going to look at what he is calling us to do. What is the culture of this kingdom? And by the way, you and I are called to live out his kingdom no matter what culture in this world we live in. No matter what family we are in or come from, no matter what nation we are in or come from, Jesus is saying, hey, live out my way. Show the world what it looks like to be satisfied in the way of life you were created for. But we cannot do it without the king. And that's why Pastor Susie preached so well last week. Did you enjoy Pastor Susie's preaching last week? She did an awesome job on this campus. Pastor Darren laid it down at Ording Valley, and, uh, and they preached about the fact that allegiance to Jesus calls us to be noticeably different from the world around us. And I want you to notice that phrase, allegiance to Jesus. Jesus is not like, hey, let's just have a small group and you can show up when you want. Jesus is not holding a picnic, although there is a feast somewhere in there. But Jesus is calling us to be subjects of his kingdom, citizens in his kingdom. He's calling us to allegiance to him. But here's the secret. You are allegiant to something. You are allegiant to someone. Oftentimes it's to yourself, most of all. But I'd ask you, where has that gotten you? Where has that gotten your relationships? Where has that gotten your ambitions and your, your longings? Often we are allegiant to ourselves or something else in this world, and it falls short of what allegiance to Jesus leads us towards. And so Jesus is calling us to live as citizens, allegiant to our king, loyal to our king, subject to our king. We don't like to be subject to anyone or anything, but Jesus is a different kind of leader. And he calls us to himself. But here's the problem. We often, and Jesus is going to go into this portion of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, we often make the mistake of thinking that all that Jesus wants to change in his kingdom is the way that we act, the way that we behave. Right? We, we start to think that Jesus came to introduce a new list of behavioral items, and all Jesus wishes from us is that we would behave a little better. All Jesus is is a frustrated parent just trying to get his kids to follow the rules. All Jesus is is this, this police officer that just says, hey, everybody follow the rules or else. Sorry, police officers, I know that's not your heart. But Jesus is so much more than that. In fact, God never wanted simply good behavior. Do you know what God is interested in far more than your behavior? He's interested in your heart. He's interested in the motives of your heart. He's interested in what, where are your desires at? And he knows that if your desires are right, if your heart is right, then good behaviors of all sorts will come out of that. They might not all look exactly the same. They might not be polished and sophisticated. But Jesus knows that if the heart is right, the overflow of the life will be right, that everything else in life, our words, our actions, and everything that comes out of us will be right if our heart is right. And so God has been working with humanity since sin entered the world through our choices to get us back on track, not just with behavior, but with the heart. And that's what we see in the Old Testament. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addresses the culture that, that prepared the world for Jesus' culture. 
In fact, it was meant to prepare the Jews to be people that would live out Jesus' culture without too many hiccups. But we find Jesus often at conflict with the culture that was meant to lead to him. And why was that? Because Jesus, well, God the Father had given the Jewish people the special privilege of living out kingdom culture in the midst of other human cultures. And we see in the Old Testament, God gives the law, the famous law of Moses and all of the other things that came out of it in the Old Testament to define a culture that was very countercultural to all the ones around it. In fact, the Hebrew culture from which the Jews came was very different from all of the other cultures around it. When they came out of Egypt and God gave them all these laws, and if you're on the Bible reading plan, you're getting into, you're getting into the laws, and I'm just telling you, just be prepared. There's a whole lot of laws, okay? Be patient and recognize that God had purpose there. God was showing them that if their hearts were right with him, this is what life should look like. If your hearts are right with me, if you are the people that I've called you to be, then these are the types of behaviors that will come out of it. And so he gives all sorts of worship parameters of how they can relate well with God, and he gives them all sorts of social laws of how they can relate better with each other. Some of them seem pretty rudimentary, to us, some of the, the male-female dynamics, some of the, the child-parent dynamics, but can I tell you they were radical in the ancient Near Eastern culture because in that culture, women and children were the same as livestock, and God was raising the value of those he created to have the dignity of carrying the image of God. And so it looks a little different, but God is moving them on this trajectory we see throughout Scripture of restoring dignity to those from whom it has been taken. And so we see all these laws, and then maybe most importantly, and you'll read a lot of these laws about different types of sacrifices they would make, and that was how when they broke those relationships with God or with people, it was how they would make them right again. So this whole culture is built on how do we have the right kind of relationship with God, the right kind of relationship with people, and God is saying, look, if you want relationship with me, this is how to do it. Here's the problem. We're always looking for the easy way out, aren't we? I mean, let's be honest. If there's a shortcut, don't you want to take the shortcut? Don't you want, I, I'll, I'll just say, you know, this, this whole idea of the law, if it's hard for you to understand what God's doing in the Old Testament, I just want you to think about your marriage or the marriage of a friend that you're close to. And I want you to think about how relationships begin. Relationships always begin with the best intentions, right? Relationships always begin with big promises. Relationships always begin with the right emotions. And so you feel like because the emotions are right right now, it's going to be easy to keep them right later. So what's the big deal? I'll promise my life away. This is going to be easy, right? We're in love. And then what happens as relationships go on? You start to realize that to actually live in a loving relationship with another human being, it's hard work. Right? Some of you are like, yeah, even my friendships are too much work. Right? And, and so we really realize that relationships are actually hard work. And over time, the emotions that made it easy to promise our lives, those emotions come and go. And so what we do, instead of desiring to just give every moment away, is we start looking for the easy way to satisfy the relationship. We start looking for the easy way to fill, fulfill the contractual agreement that we made. Or we just give up on the relationship altogether. 
And that's exactly what God's people have done throughout history. The moments that they committed to, these emotional highs, God did miracles, revealed himself in powerful ways, and they're like, yes, we'll do it all. Check all the boxes, make all the vows, we're going to walk in relationship with you. And then over time, what happened is they realized, you know what, um, we really want the blessings of the relationship without the work of the relationship, so how do we check these boxes as easy as possible? And I'll be honest, there's times in my marriage when I'm like, Okay, I know what she wants from me. I don't want what she wants from me. How do I get away with this? I mean, you do the same thing. Don't pretend you're better than me. All right? And we do the same thing to God. And Jesus goes into this portion of Scripture explaining how often we misunderstand or misapply the words of God. We misunderstand and misapply some of the behavioral items when God all along is looking for right relationships with God and people. All along, what he wants is our hearts, and we settle for behavioral checklists or just give up on them altogether. And so I want you to look at what Jesus says in Matthew 5, going on in verse 17 from where we've been in the past. And Jesus starts this way. He says, don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. What's the purpose? Right relationship with God and with people. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear which they will someday. Not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose, what's its purpose? Right relationship with God and with people is achieved. So if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Woo! Anybody feel some expectations? I hate expectations. I hate them. I mean, I have high expectations for everyone else in the world. I don't like their expectations being on me. God just put some expectations on us. Jesus is sharing his expectations, and he's saying, hey, all of this, you know, some of them at this point were starting to think, is Jesus trying to get rid of the law of Moses? Is he trying to get rid of the Old Testament? He's saying, no, no, I'm trying to show you what it was truly meant for all along. The purpose of all of those laws was right relationship with God and with people. And that law is going to stay there until we figure out how to have right relationship with God and with people. And he says, but here's the deal. If you think that what I'm talking about is just doing what your religious teachers are already doing and saying, that's the mark I have to hit. I have to follow all the rules as specifically as possible, which is what the Pharisees were known for. They followed every law to the T and trampled people in the process and often ignored God along the way as well. And Jesus says, if you want the kind of culture that I have, you're going to have to be better than them. And everybody in that audience would have been like, I'm hopeless. I've already failed at that. I can't do more than that. But notice the word Jesus uses. He uses righteousness. Every time you see righteousness in the Bible, instead of thinking it's some like weird old spiritual word, righteousness simply means right relationship 
with God and with people. That's God's purpose. That's what Jesus died on the cross for, to restore that relationship with God and with people. It's what he poured out his spirit for, to help you live in right relationship with God and his people. It's what his word calls us to, right relationship with God and his people. But I want to be very clear that Jesus is calling us to obey a set of cultural expectations that are different than the cultures that we live in have handled it, handed us. Jesus hands us a very different set of expectations. Our cultures all say, this is what you need to do to be accepted. This is what you need to do to be rewarded. But Jesus says, I have a different set of expectations for you than what you've been given by your families and your societies. And actually, Jesus says, my expectations are going to be harder. Let it sink in. Why would you ever want harder? We want easier. But Jesus says, Nobody else is going to help you live up to those expectations, and I will. And so Jesus goes on to a, several different areas. I'm going to talk about two this morning where he raises the expectations from what the people of God thought they were because he raises them not just to behavioral issues but to heart issues. And so we read on in verse 21, and he says this, You have heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you're subject to judgment. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, oops, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. Whew. So if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there. This is worship. Go and be reconciled to that person and then come and offer your sacrifice to God. When you're on your way to court with your adversary, settle your differences quickly, otherwise your accuser may hand you over to the judge who will hand you over to an officer and you will be thrown into prison and if that happens, you surely won't be free again until you've paid the last penny. Jesus is talking about anger here. And then he gives two different examples where we might be angry, but we're actually the problem, right? He talks about a relationship within the church family that needs to be reconciled, and we're trying to worship God while our relationships with each other are fractured. And then he's talking about a relationship in society, and how do we, how do we navigate conflict in society? I'm going to sue you. I'm taking you to court. And by the way, some of you have been in relationships that landed in court, and how do those relationships feel today? Not restored. Not full of trust. We don't heal with our anger. Now, I want to be clear. Jesus isn't talking about anger at evil and injustice in the world. God demonstrates a very healthy anger at evil and injustice. He's talking about the anger that comes more naturally to us. It's that dehumanizing anger. That anger that suddenly turns people into less than people. That anger that so easily condemns and ridicules and criticizes and critiques other people. It's that kind of anger that leads us to just insult people without thinking about them. That, that call, use, uh, allows us to use language that is, that is really deprecating towards people. And that's usually the least of what we're thinking towards them right? That this kind of anger turns people into problems. And that's why Jesus says, hey, the Old Testament said you can't murder people. And they're all like, we know. 
And Jesus says, I'm saying you can't even act on an angry thought towards someone. He ups the ante. He says, I'm bigger than Moses, and my expectations are higher than Moses's, and I'm telling you that a verbal attack is just as sinful and damaging as a physical one. Now, as someone who is fairly verbose and grew up in a family where uh, anger was not abnormal, this is a challenge for me. This is a huge challenge for me. Because it comes naturally for me to express my emotions out of my mouth before I process them. And Jesus is saying, that's not okay, Caleb. If you want to be my kind of person living out Jesus' culture, you can't do that even when you are justified in doing it. And why is Jesus so concerned? Some of us are like, oh, don't, don't say a swear word. Oh, don't do that. Do you know that Jesus is concerned with the heart more than the behavior, but he says what comes out of your mouth shows what's in your heart? What comes out of your mouth shows what you honor and what you, what you tear down. The Bible also says that our words have the power of life and death. And you know this. You know this because you have been damaged by other people's words at different points in your life. People who should have treated you like a valuable person actually said things that haunt you. Because as human beings, we are good at using words to do damage. And words kill the soul even though they don't harm the body. All of this, all of this works out for, for Jesus to say, look, when you do something wrong, you better make it right. He says, you've got to make it right with your brother or sister in Christ. You need to make it right with someone in your community that you've wronged. And he says, don't express your anger to dehumanize someone else. Jesus' kingdom calls us to prioritize people above the problems that they cause. And I want you to think about that because generally we are angry at someone because they are causing a problem for us personally. Maybe not a problem for anybody else, but they're inconveniencing us. They're getting in our way. They're not doing things the way we want them to. It may be a child that you can't get to behave the way you want them to. It may be a coworker that's getting in your way and slowing down your processes. It may be a spouse that just will not be trained the way you're trying to train them. I don't know what it is, but people anger us because they inconvenience us. And in our heads, it becomes a problem. It becomes something that we're like, why do they keep doing this? I can't believe they would do this. They are an idiot. And Jesus says, really? Because he says, what the Father says is they're created in God's image. So what you call an idiot, you're calling a reflection of God an idiot. It's not the same part of the reflection that you are. You might not see the whole picture of God's image, but God sees his image in every single one of you and every single other person on this earth. And we are called to see people first as human beings, as persons, as children of God, people created in God's image with value, with dignity, with identity. And we are called to respond to them as people of value. And here's what I know. When you value someone, even if they disappoint you or anger you, you respond to them differently. How many of you, if your hero walked into the room, someone that you really respect, someone that's achieved great things in your career field, or maybe it's a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle, someone that you really revere, if you walk in and they do something that you would have yelled at your kids for doing, but they do it, you're like, oh, oh that's fine. Don't, don't worry about it. You're, you're okay. 
right? We treat people differently based on how we value them. And when we treat people badly, it's because we don't value them. We make them less than us. And Jesus says, that is not okay. That is the root of murder. When you think that you have the right to take their life away. And whenever we think that someone is less than us, Jesus is saying, you might as well have murdered them. Don't do that. But he's saying, your sin before God is the same. It's just as sinful, just as damaging. I want right relationship and anger expressed freely. And so what do we do with our anger? Jesus says, I've given you a brain and I've given you a spirit that are supposed to function in unison with your emotions. You will feel things as a natural response to life, but Jesus has given you a brain to filter your feelings. That's, we're supposed to live it with wisdom, and he's given us his spirit, because ours is broken by sin, to exercise self-control over our emotions. And exercise is the right word, because it's a muscle that has to be used. And here's the beautiful thing. Jesus is preaching a message to people he knows will fail, and that's why later he goes to the cross for all of us. Because he's like, you're not always going to get this right, but I'm going to die for you, not condemn you. So don't condemn each other. But anger is not the only uh, sin that we excuse fairly easily, is it? So Jesus goes on, and he says in verse 31, or sorry, verse 27, he says, You've heard the commandment that says you, not, you must not commit adultery. But I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Just letting that one sit for a second. Can I just pause here and just say, Jesus is not calling out the sins of a few. He's calling out the sins of the many. So as we talk about anger and lust, Jesus is addressing these things because the majority of people fail at them, not the minority of people. Verse 29, so if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. That's disgusting. (laughs) It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now, let's just start by saying nobody better be cutting any body parts off this week, all right? Jesus often speaks, in fact, the entire law is given to describe physical behavior that's meant to indicate heart behavior. What Jesus is speaking here is really kind of a parable of saying, if something is leading you into this sin, radically remove it from your life. I can't tell you how many people have come to me and they're like, Pastor Caleb, I can't stop sinning in this area or that area, particularly in the area of lust. And I'm like, well, what's, where's the source? Where do you engage with this sin? Well, right here. And I'm like, get that thing out of your life. For instance, lust nowadays is facilitated by smartphones and screens everywhere. And we have been convinced that we need them attached to our body to function as human beings. And Jesus is saying... If that's the thing that's causing you to do something that threatens the fires of hell on you, get it out of your life! And do you know that polls show that that Generation Z would literally rather lose an arm than lose their smartphone? 
And we could be like, oh, those young people. But who gave them a smartphone in first grade? Right? And, and who, who said, hey, stop bothering me. Go play a game on your tablet. And who said, hey, I'm too busy to talk with you right now and play basketball in the driveway because I'm finishing my video game? Or who's like, hey, I'll be with you in a minute. I've got too many work emails I'm going through. We have passed on a destructive addiction to our children, and then we wonder why they would rather have a machine than the body and life that God has given them. And what Jesus is saying, and we're like, oh, gouge your eye out. What's wrong with you? Oh, Jesus, you're sick. But Jesus is saying, really? You're addicted to a machine. An optional machine. And isn't that the way sin is? It's a choice that we choose for ourselves. We choose it for ourselves. And Jesus isn't saying that... that um, he's not saying that, he takes the Old Testament command, you can't commit adultery, and we'd all say, yeah, yeah, we shouldn't cheat on our significant other, that's not a good thing. And Jesus is saying, but if you've ever looked lustfully at someone, same thing. Now I want to be clear here, he's not saying don't be attracted to people, it's a sin to be attracted. Again, being attracted to someone of the opposite sex is a God-intended part of your biology, You are supposed to be attracted to the opposite sex. But again, that is a feeling. It's a biological response that is meant to be paired with your brain, wisdom, and your spirit, with the help of the Holy Spirit, self-control. You are in charge of your instincts. You are not an animal. You are a human being made in the image of God. And God expects you to act more like God than like an animal. And so we can recognize impulses, I want to eat that, I want to have sex with that, and we can in both cases and in every other instinct say, but I don't have to. Oh, and we could even say, and actually it might even be bad for me and for them if I do act on that impulse. Now here's the thing, I'm standing before you today as someone who struggles with both anger and lust in my life. Not not all the time. God's set me more and more free from those things, but I don't think it's fair for me to kind of publicly shame all of us as a community unless I'm willing to shame myself too. But I'm not ashamed of anything because Jesus has saved me from everything. And I am being renewed day by day, led from glory to glory, and I'm more a man of the spirit than of the flesh today than I've ever been before. And that's the promise of Jesus to each one of us to say, if you will cut off from yourself the things that you brought, thought would bring you pleasure that are actually bringing you pain, I will lead you to a place, not just of pleasure, but of satisfaction, of wholeness, of happiness, of completeness with yourself and in relationship with God and with people, because that is God's goal. It's God's desire. And so Jesus' kingdom, again, calls us, just like he addresses anger because he wants us to value the people more than the problems they cause us, Jesus, again, he addresses lust because Jesus' kingdom calls us to value people more than the pleasure they offer us. And you see the real issue here is that we walk around through life as if we are the only one that matters and we turn everyone around us into either an opportunity for pleasure or a problem to be dealt with. We evaluate everyone through these, this lens, the pleasure-pain lens. Are they causing me more pain or more pleasure? 
And that really is the shift that happens in that marriage relationship that I talked about earlier. Early on in the relationship, it's all pleasure, no pain. And then as you get to know the person and the relationship becomes work, you, st- you start thinking, oh, maybe, maybe, the, maybe this isn't as fun and it's more work. This is, uh, I don't know if I want this anymore. Here's the reality. We've all been perpetrators in some way. Lust is not just a sexual thing. It's often the focal point, but lust is any time we want more of something than God has actually given us. It can apply to money, possessions, anything in this world when we just are like, I need that, I crave that, I want that, I have to have that. That's lust. And when we act on that lust, that is sin. When we tolerate that lust, that's why he says, if you've looked at someone lustfully. Because you can recognize someone's attractive and be like, that's great, praise the Lord. God's got a great spouse for somebody out there. But when you look, seek, fantasize, pursue sin, you've suddenly mentally taken something that God has not given you. On the flip side, when God gives you a spouse, and he does not give everyone a spouse, because some people, we are told that he wants to reserve them for himself. He gives them, he promises to satisfy them in ways no human relationship can. But for those he gives a spouse, be attracted. Feed the attraction. Please, if you are married, feed the attraction. Do you know why? Do you know why God addresses sex? Because it is a soul thing. It is a spirit thing. Do you know what that means? That sexual uh, relationship is actually the closest human thing to what happens spiritually in worship. It is a soul bridge to join souls together. Just like our worship joins us spirit to spirit with God, sex joins us soul to soul with other people. That's why it's a sacred thing. It is actually a worshipful thing. And so when you are pursuing something God hasn't given you out of sexual desire, it is not only physical adultery, it's spiritual adultery. By the way, all sin is spiritual adultery. But when you are pursuing a spouse that God has given you out of sexual attraction, it's not only a good thing, it's a worshipful thing. And so you want to pursue, I just want to take a moment to say married couples, you should pursue sexual satisfaction in your relationship. We're still in church, right? Is that okay? But seriously, people think that like because they serve God, he doesn't want to satisfy their life anymore. No, he wants to satisfy you with the goodness of God in healthy ways that won't damage your soul or damage other people or damage your relationship with God. But we have to trust Jesus for the right way. The right way. And that's what Jesus calls us to. Jesus calls us to aggressively separate ourselves from the things that draw us away from his way of life. And you may be sitting here and you've mastered anger and you've mastered lust and you're like, this message is just totally not for me. And I would just ask you, then what haven't you mastered? Probably pride. (laughs) Because whatever you haven't mastered... That's where you need to come and meet Jesus and say, Jesus, what do I need to separate from my life? And can I tell you, as Christians, we are meant to embrace good things. But we are also meant to separate ourselves from damaging things. Which means that your life is full of radical choices. Your life is full of radical good choices. Do you know Sabbath was a radical good choice? I am not going to pursue human ambitions for one whole day a week. And instead, I'm going to rest in what God's already provided for me. Do you know Sabbath was celebrated with good meals, 
Actually, married couples made sure that the Jewish expectation was that you would have sex with your spouse on Sabbath. People are suddenly like, I'm going to practice Sabbath. (laughs) Do you know that you were supposed to eat some of the best food of your week on Sabbath? Sabbath was meant to be a celebration of all the good that God put in the world. And then work the other six days of the week was meant to show that God has equipped us to do good things in the world. There are good things we're supposed to lean into and radically choose. And then there are other things we are supposed to radically reject. I will, on the flip side of those things, I will reject laziness. Sabbath was not an excuse for laziness. It's meaningful rest. I will reject uh, either sexual perversion or sexual withdrawal from a spouse that, I, that, that God has given me. I will reject either ascetic, starving myself. I can never enjoy any good food. And I also reject gluttony. I will reject greed. I will reject all these other things that call me to indulge my own sinful nature and I will embrace the journey that Jesus has for me. And when we do that, we look different than the world. We look different than the world. Speaking of the technology issue earlier, we should look different than the world. And I'm not saying technology can't be a great tool and it have, a, have its place in life. But as a society, we are being destroyed by addictions that come to us through machines that we pay way too much money for and can't live without. We're like, where's my phone? I lost my phone. I don't know where to go without my phone. You've done it. Next time you lose your phone, I want you to just practice being like, I'll find it eventually. Don't even worry about it, unless you know your spouse is supposed to call, because then you better find that phone. That's what I'm frantic. I'm like, she's going to call. Where is that phone? Kids, find the phone! It's all about the situation. Jesus leads us for the situation. But can I just end by by asking this question? If God loves, and this is a question that I get asked a lot, if God loves us so much, why? Why does he make so many demands on how we live? Because make no mistake about it, Jesus puts demands on how, you're, how you live. He saves you so that you can live the way he called you to live, not so that you don't have to do anything he said. Why does God put so many demands on us? Have you ever wondered that? As you read through the Old Testament law, you're kind of like, man, God, I don't, what, what's all this about? Why does God put so many demands on us? It's all about right relationship with God and others. God puts boundaries on our selfishness and our pride, on our self-indulgence, our selfish ambition. He puts boundaries on those things so that we can engage in healthy relationships with him and with each other. And if we want that relationship with him and with each other to be healthy, then the boundaries make sense. But if we're really only interested in pleasing ourselves, not really in pleasing God or loving the people around us, then his boundaries are a complete waste of time. And they will feel that way. So again, it comes back to the heart. I want us to understand because as followers of Jesus, there will always be boundaries that God calls us to. And sometimes he even calls us to boundaries for a season. Sometimes God puts on our hearts, hey, I want you to fast for this for a while. Talk about a boundary. Right? So scripture even says, since we've talked about these two things, he, he, Scripture even indicates that there are times that married couples fast sex for a season in order to focus on praying together. 
You know, he puts, there are times where he calls us to different momentary boundaries, or always, always, he puts boundaries on things that damage our relationship or hinder our relationship with God, our relationship with one another, or ourselves. God is committed to wholeness, he's committed to flourishing. He's committed to leading us in a way of life that actually satisfies. The challenge is, will we trust him? Will we trust him? Will we follow him? Will we submit to him? And here's here's the, the testimony of people that have pursued Jesus wholeheartedly is they've never been disappointed. I can tell you, though, that it grieves me It grieves me, and there are people that I grieve over because they've had moments, and Jesus had a lot of these moments in the Gospels, right? There were people he called to follow him, they left everything and followed him and lived fruitful lives. And there are other people he called to follow him, and they walked away. And Jesus grieved over them. There's people in my life I grieve over because I'm like, oh, man, there was this one command, this one conviction, this one biblical challenge that they were like, if Jesus is calling me to that, then I can't follow him. And can I tell you, that's exactly why Jesus gives us the commands to reveal. He says he gave the Old Testament law to the Israelites to reveal that their hearts actually didn't want God. So that when Jesus came, they could turn from the sins of the heart and find what it meant to truly live in him. He's calling you this morning. He's calling you this morning to follow him. And those that are following him, he's calling you to come closer to him. It's the purpose of holiness in our lives. Holiness is not to earn salvation. Holiness is to find intimacy with God. When I realize that holiness is about God giving me more divine pleasure, not just limiting my worldly pleasure, I'm like, Jesus, make me holy. Make me holy. Break me of all these worldly addictions and habits that I so easily succumb to. Make me holy because I want more of you. Do you remember the beatitude? Those who are pure in heart will what? See the most beautiful thing that ever existed, the most intoxicating, desirable, glorious thing that ever existed, God himself. I want to see God. I want you to see God. And someday we will, but Jesus says you, you could see him sooner. If you, want, if you want that, would you bow your heads with me this morning? This morning, we come before the Lord as broken people. We come before the Lord as flawed people, people who many of us have had our struggles with anger or lust, all sorts of other things. Unfortunately, we come before the Lord as people who often settle for those things as norms. They're not norms in God's kingdom. And Jesus calls us to repent. He calls us to acknowledge that certain things are wrong and to turn from them. But we don't turn from them to other behaviors. We turn from them to Jesus himself. We simply come face to face with Jesus and say, Jesus, you know my sin. You know the things that are between me and you and the things that have damaged my relationships with other people. You know these things. Jesus, will you take them from me? Will you forgive me? Will you heal me? Will you restore me?
the resounding answer of Jesus is yes. This morning as we sit in the presence of God, I just want to ask with heads bowed and eyes closed, I just want to ask if you have either done damage or been damaged by anger and you just want to Give that to the Lord, either the wounds that you've received or the wounds you've inflicted. Would you just slip a hand up as a step of faith? Yeah, thank you for those hands. God gives grace and healing. Thank you for the honesty all around the room. Similarly, you can put those hands down, but if you, if you have done damage or been damaged by lust, would you slip a hand up as an honest statement to God and just say, God, I need your healing or your forgiveness. Either one. It's all restoration. Thank you for the honesty around the room. Jesus, you move in our honesty. You move in our humility. Praise you, God. I just want you to know I raise my hands, both hands for both things because I need God's grace and healing, forgiveness. One more if you're just recognizing I haven't followed Jesus. I haven't given my life to him and I want to give my life to him today. Would you just slip a hand up to heaven? Yeah, I see those hands. Thank you. Thank you. I see that hand. Yeah, awesome. Awesome. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the honesty of your people. I thank you that that's really all you need from us is our humility is our turning to you from our sin. Thank you for the restoration you have brought in my life. I pray that same restoration over these that have confessed sin or wounds. I pray, Father, that you would lead us on a journey of forgiveness and healing. I pray that you would make us people, unlike this world, who walk around enslaved to both the damage done against us and the damage we do to others. I pray that you would set us free by your spirit, because of the blood on the cross that freed us and forgave us. You took the penalty for those sins, and through your blood, we can have healing. And your spirit brings that to pass. And so, Father, we give ourselves to you. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.